Welcome to the next episode of our series, Cultures and Conversations, Preludes and Postscripts. My name is Mikey Mehna, and I'm joined by three amazing guests. The first is Natasha Petrosheen Bachelet, who is a curator, educator, and writer. Welcome, Natasha. Lara Rudar, an artist, filmmaker, and environmental ad, uh, environmental advocate. Welcome, Lara. And Philip Mon, writer, editor, and co-founder of The Black Almanac. Welcome to all of you. Cultures and Conversations is a series of multidisciplinary events, cross-cultural conversations, and artistic interventions, which has been commissioned by Expo 2020 Dubai and programmed by Al Sirkal. This series is entitled Preludes and Postscripts, and today's theme is an outlook on change. So since that is today's theme, I thought it may be good to go around the room briefly. Natasha, we'll start with you. And let me ask you a broad question. How much do you think about long-term change um, as you engage in your work. Hello, Mikey, and hello to everyone who is listening, and thank you so much for this invitation. I'm very honored to be here with you again. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, beautiful question, I would say, because it, it literally asks us, actually, what do we mean with the future? What do we, what do we mean with the past? You know, I follow very much... Um, how to say, since I started to work as a curator, I think the the notions of temporalities are really defining us. And this is usually taking place on many different levels. So I would say that we always look for, of course, implementing, uh, making, enabling, making, producing, um, so that something will happen. And this temporality is usually related to an event, an exhibition, a project. So it's quite, let's say, quite um, packed in certain sense of uh, temporality related to due dates. I don't use the word, for example, deadline. I use the word due date. And I think we will talk more about the language later on. But due date is a nicer word than killing your deadline, right? So the this temporality or this uh, prospective thinking when uh, when making when curating when thinking or when exchanging is definitely there however personally i'm an adept of what i call slow uh, slow curating uh, thinking about how institutions go should go slower and uh, this comes through my reading of um, belgian philosopher uh, isabel stengers who has written in depth, actually claiming for a more, um, you know, she, she compared, let's say, something that was related to a more quiet time of somebody that works with, within a garden, like, a you know, a, an amateur gardener, let's say, in comparison to somebody that works on agriculture, on extensive agriculture. So the, the difference is vast. And what this slowness and slowing down means is indeed to find the time to actually think about the future. If we if we take that necessary time and not only uh, you know um, run after the deadlines, let's say that are um, of course framing uh, what we do, I think we can find sufficient place for enabling such exchanges that might have uh, an impact for the future might have an impact for the future of those that will be part of 
what we are doing. So part of, you know, as a public or as our dialogue partners or uh, artists or institutions, basically. And so I really believe, basically, I really believe more than in the future. I really, I really believe uh, uh, into the long-term thinking. Yeah, thanks. Laura, what about you? I mean, in, in my byline, I described you as being an environmental advocate, which it, I feel like that role, it's hard to divorce yourself from thinking about change. Advocacy, by definition, has to think about change. And I would imagine when you couple that with environmentalism, you have to think about really long-term change. I'd love for you to speak about how that sort of actually plays out in your work, in your process. Sure. Well, I'm an 18-year-old environmental advocate, um, and I was, I've was i been advocating for a majority of my life. And I only mention my age because I really think that children and teenagers actually always think about their futures, you know, um, what they want to be when they grow up, how their lives will look in 10 to 20 years. Um, so they always think about the future in some way or another. And my work concerns climate action. And right now with the new IPCC report, you know, we all know that we have a really small window of change before tipping points and completely irreversible change. So I think I always am with my work concerned about the future and just like billions of people in this world hoping and fighting for a more sustainable and equitable future that is safe for all of us because as well as um you know different effects like biodiversity and rising sea levels this will also um affect our society um with famine with uh socio-political issues so it really is a social issue as well and it will affect our futures our job prospects you know immigration migration so yeah, I think I always am. Yeah. Philip, how about you? Well, our project is set up as an almanac, which, you know, these are ancient uh, documents that were um, kind of uh, early instances of planning and trying to cope with the climate uh, and, and changes that were coming. And, you know, we set it up as an almanac. Uh, the project was founded in 2020 and we set it up as an almanac that would take us to 2050. Uh, but that deadline was sort of handed to us. There are all these interesting um, huge, you know, research uh, data kind of projects by the UN and the, the Food and Land Use Coalition and so on that where they say, you know, we need X amount of food by this date. We need to, you know, bring down emissions by so much. We have to deal with the, uh, the population will be 10 billion. You know, we have to make more, more food than we've ever made before. So, you know, the, the kind of uh, the timeline was already established for us when we made uh, that choice. But I think one thing about long-term futures is uh, I really love uh, the, the language Lara used there of being an advocate for the environment or, or even an advocate for the future because, you know, we, we take a very materialist stance, which is to say that we believe the future is a real place. Uh, that it, that it exists and it's coming whether whether you like it or not and I think you know as human beings we're really terrible at uh, you know at um, at recognizing slow moving risks and we're really terrible at planning and so even though I know that uh, we, we've mentioned the IPCC already you know it was very interesting that uh, the the kind of um, the the part three working group summary that came out uh, earlier this week or last week. Um, you know, one of the very interesting things about the language in that report was that it became much more comfortable with this idea of planning and coordination uh, rather than this kind of like 
uh, decentralized sort of um, spontaneous kind of s solutions emerging. Uh, I think uh, there's a sort of uh, uh, kind of growing up going on where we, where we recognize that, uh, you know, some kind of level of planning and coordination is necessary. And, and that's what almanacs are about, I would say. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I want to go around the room and uh, tag onto this question, right? We've been talking about change as a society um, for my entire life. Uh, there have always been this sense of today's the due date, today's the deadline, tomorrow it, it's coming. This tidal wave is slow, is slowly approaching. We've hit the point of no return, um, or we're about to hit the point of no return. So maybe we can sort of go around the room and I'd love to hear from your various vantage points, how likely is change? And when we think about this with a, with a sort of a solutions oriented mindset, or uh, with any sense of creativity or optimism, who is who is actually capable of driving that change, if possible? Natasha, let's start with you. Thank you. And thank you to Lara and Philip also for, for these beautiful introductions. I see the waves coming together. Listen, I come from a place that does not exist yet any longer as a country. So I'm, you know, a result of something that is based on change. <laughs> I have been. I was born in uh, a place called Yugoslavia, uh, and that has had a, a very violent breakup. And that uh, violent breakup, unfortunately, resulted, obviously, in, in military conflicts that uh, we still see a lot taking place today. Uh, the military conflict is obviously not the only violent thing happening, right? I mean, uh, if we are talking about the climate deregulation, climate breakdown. Uh, also here, the language changed. And I think recently this, this climate breakdown actually started to induce the idea that we, uh, as Philip said, we really have to coordinate our actions. And change is based on actions, I would say. So change is really related to understanding that we are all very interdependent. I love to use that word, interdependency. For me, it's really the key concept of how we should look at things today. Interdependency, uh, I think, is the basis of any change, which means that we understand each other, uh, humans, non-humans alike. Uh, we have to see each other also being aligned on the same uh, priority list, on the same, uh, let's say, that there should be less and less hierarchy given to us humans. Uh, I think that's definitely, and we see that taking place, uh, not only in, in theoretical discourse, but also in practice. So I would say for me, the change is based on interdependent actions. I, I absolutely love that, Natasha. I love that distinction. Um, Lara, as, you introduced yourself as being, uh, you know, an 18 year old. That was in the first sentence of the way you, the way you think of yourself. And, you know, there's always this trope about the children are our future. The children are our future. They're the ones who are going to, um, uh, they're the ones who are going to drive the change. Does that feel, does that resonate with you? Do you feel that, that that is actually a onus that you are excited to take on? Do you feel like that is something that is a positive proclamation? Talk a little bit about that. In all the conferences I've been to uh, with the UN, all the leaders would always say, you know, you're the next generation, your generation will be solving these issues um, and putting a lot of importance on us, which was great. But the thing is, sometimes it's really important to go back into the past 
and see how we came to this place in the first place to actually read the history and uh, the context behind the issues. Um, you know, climate change, it, the first COP started around like 30 years ago. And so in 30 years, nothing has really changed. We're still on the same pathway. So it's really important to, I guess, learn uh, from the mistakes of the past, from um, why there was an action and try and actually not repeat those mistakes. But I think when there's a lot of importance placed on youth and their, I guess, future power, also perhaps there's less importance placed on the people who are currently in power and should be um, doing the things that they are responsible for. You know, sometimes in these conferences, I was like, okay, but I shouldn't be here, you know, as youth, as uh, 18-year-olds. I shouldn't be in this room full of uh, presidents and ministers because they should be doing this work in a way themselves, like as their own responsibility. It's great that they're asking for our contributions, um, but we're literally high school students, you know? So it is great, the sense of collaboration. And I think um, as Natasha mentioned, you know, collaboration and this interdependence is really important between countries, um, between different generations. But I think accountability is also important uh, for this generation. And also, I guess, responsibility for uh, the older people to actually guide youth as well through this. Um, not only saying, yes, you're, you are the future leaders, but actually giving us these skills and um, giving us opportunities and the guidance and support needed for us to become these uh leaders yeah it's interesting uh, philip i presume you were you were a teenager once upon a time too and so i i wonder if your understanding of change has sort of you know morphed throughout your career and when you think about how likely change is quote unquote change is and who is capable of driving that change has your understanding of that question changed over time, sort of evolved and morphed? I mean, definitely. I have moved, I would say, from a position of uh, of kind of deep political engagement to sort of a, a kind of agnosticism towards parties, governments, uh, multilateral organizations. Uh, I've become more interested, I suppose, in the systems approach to how change emerges. Um, I also really love this idea of interdependence, but a word I, I use uh, probably interchangeably is, is entanglement. Um, partly this is from, 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 it's famously used in The Origin of Species by Darwin. He, you know, he refers to the entangled bank that we kind of, uh, that is the biosphere. And I think it's important for people to uh, recognize that, you know, there's no such thing as an individual human. Uh, not only do we belong to this kind of so, uh, super organism that is human society, and, and that itself has become kind of a force of nature, right? Like, you know, you, an, an individual could no more uh, kind of direct the whole of human society than they could sort of stop the tide from coming in. But, you know, we're, we're entangled uh, as a society with the biosphere, with the economy, you know, with technology, you know, with food, we, we have this kind of 
this this perennial problem of a kind of responsible consumerist approach to you know transforming a system and and one uh, uh well yeah the food system itself also is another very large system and, and and complex one and and one that no no kind of individual has has power over you know so i think a, one of the goals uh, with black almanac is to kind of point out where the blockages and where the actual kind of uh, leverages for change are because they're they're really hidden you know we think about uh waste for example and you know while kind of overconsumption and uh and, and food wastage at a kind of sort of individual private level is is large it doesn't come anywhere close to the the wastage that is in crop residues and uh you know in in processing and, and so on it's the same with emissions right like the emissions uh mostly exist at the point of production not at the point of consumption and so how do you kind of uh how do you access those things it's really difficult but uh in terms of you know my maybe we can go on to talk about this a bit in a bit later my personal approach to change or interested change has shifted largely, I would say, from what uh, kind of managerial politicians are are doing, or more often than not, you know, finding creative ways to not do, uh, towards how innovation happens, how you know how things are funded, how technology can kind of be steered in certain directions, because ultimately. That through the research Black Almanac has done, I've I've come to believe that engineers sort of can be engineered. Uh, so change can be engineered, but not by a single individual. It's kind of more of a, a stately process than that. So it's interesting. I, you know, we're talking about change as if we're waiting for it to happen, right? But change is happening, right? Change is happening. It's just not the type of the type of change we're hoping for. It's inevitable. I just it's, uh, yeah. I mean, ch- change is not. Um, Change is not an option. I mean, it's going to happen either way. The question is, how, how do you intervene to kind of direct it somewhere you, you prefer, you know, a pre- preferable outcome? Precisely. So I'm curious to ask, when we think about the, the change that we're hoping for, can it be a, is it possible for it to be a, a friendly change that happens seamlessly, that is, that is not disruptive and doesn't, isn't almost sort of like violent this violent disruption of our current uh, status quo. Is there an outlook for a undrastic change that can sort of right the ship? Yeah, I mean, well, something that springs to mind immediately when you mention that is the question of automation, which is, you know, uh, which can be a really catastrophic cascade of uh, economic, social change, um, ecological uh, change, if not handled in the right way. And I'd say we have pretty terrible track record for dealing with this you know i have kind of an understanding of automation that is essentially you know as a sort of scaffold you know that that the idea that you you kind of uh you you create machines or, or or processes that automate something and then we all sort of hang up our boots and go home is not really how i understand it you know you kind of you 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 automate uh damaging and kind of um inefficient and kind of harmful processes so that we can focus our energies elsewhere. You know, um, there's so much during the pandemic, you know, there's so much uh, exposure of the kind of uh, some of the sort of human costs of the food system as it currently exists. You know, you had agricultural workers in southern Spain who, who usually come over from Morocco 
uh, who were then kind of trapped there almost in a stateless situation without access to healthcare and, you know, because the borders closed and you had, uh, you know, uh, viruses spreading through meat factories, this uh, meat processing factories. This was like a really big deal uh, here in Germany where I am, you know, there, there was a number of, uh, of, of super spreader kind of uh, moments came through this. And, you know, these are the sorts of things uh, meet to one side, but, you know, like there was all this kind of argument about like, uh, you know, how the, <laughs> that these, these people didn't want to do these jobs, you know, that's kind of come in the aftermath. And it's kind of like, this is, uh, this is somewhere that automation sort of um, should start, should step in, but it can only do so when we have kind of a plan, like we've gone back to earlier, when we have some kind of, uh, you know, reskilling and, and kind of, um, uh, you know, basic income, there are all these kinds of different uh, social supports, you know, social safety nets. I mean, there has to be kind of, uh, you can't just let it sort of run rampant. Yeah. Um, I was just saying like, in the climate space as well, there's always this um, like mission of transitioning into green energy and abolishing the fossil fuel industry. And you know the word abolish is so heavy and strong, and it has power. But um, I think sometimes you really need to understand that you can't do it immediately um, because so many economies rely on fossil fuels right now. And so there are you know other issues such as poverty and those who are now working in these industries um, that, as you know, you mentioned, Philip, um, have to be supported through the upskilling and um, through education to um, make this transition into green renewable energies uh, just for everyone um, so that there are no, you know, incredible, you know, huge revolts and uprisings against, you know, governments who are trying to maybe push their countries into a more sustainable path. Um, it can't be in extremely immediate. But then at the same time, if it's not immediate, you also have that question of, you know, climate change um, becoming worse. So I think lots of people are frustrated with all the talks happening in conferences, you know, nothing coming out of them. Um, but it is so nuanced and so complicated and action isn't being taken swiftly enough. But I think with the way that we're going about it, you need to consider all these different aspects and people's, you know, well-beings and really dedicate these resor uh, resources to supporting people through this uh, transition, through this change. Absolutely. Natasha, go ahead. I was just thinking, going back to, to your question about friendly change, I find that really um, almost like a utopian notion. It would, it would go, I guess, alongside with uh, what Lara and Philip were saying through their own perspectives, but could we make a revolution with care? So what, what would that look like? Meaning that all this you know, collective movement that we have to be part of, uh, in order to see if if we stick to the issues of green transitioning or um, you know how how climate breakdown affects the social uh, and political realities, so how could we do these revolutions with care? I think it's possible. I think it's possible, but we have to be many. Uh, it's not possible to be just. It's, it's neither possible just to be on one side and talk about it, uh, even if it's in the most nuanced way. It can affect, but, but this talking in nuanced way affects others, affects people like, for example, me and my colleagues who work in arts. And then we bring forth, uh, you know, uh, projects, ideas. Uh, we work on it. We talk about it. And this furthermore affects other people that are seeing this, that are experiencing this. So there is this web of affecting one another with a more careful way than, than just with the, with the direct violence. So that would be 
I think it's possible, although it's utopian, but the time again, so back, going back to the question of time and the future, I wonder how much time we have. And this is, I think, something that comes back very much in, in the questions about change and change related to ecological system, to ecosystems. What are these timelines? What are these, you know, what are the, the temporalities of the change? So, yeah. And, and you know, I, to pick up on the word <laughs> friendly, um, I might want to uh, shift it over to delicious because, you know, one interesting thing, of course, is working with food is that the way people most obviously experience it is in terms of uh, being an eater. <laughs> and uh, whenever we we list out these kind of, uh, you know, things that, that kind of uh, in, an, in an incredibly you know, functional and ideal world uh, would happen by 2050. You know, we think about the food system being, you know, zero waste, carbon negative, uh, you know, um, all of these things, but it has to be delicious. It has to be joyful. Uh, and, and there's kind of, some, that's a bit more sophisticated than it might initially um, seem because, you know, there are all these kind of studies based on how people uh, are drawn to certain foods. And of course, you know, if you look at the long history of food, I mean, all foods had to be discovered. All foods had to be kind of um, kind of invented, if you like. Um, and the artificiality of food is something that we also look at a lot. But so there are studies, you know, with, uh, okay, a very kind of hot topic and, uh, you know, would be, um, you know, eating insects. And so, you know, there's a study in Denmark where uh, people were given uh, mealworm truffles and they were told, you know, oh, if you eat these, uh, you know, you're saving the environment. Uh, they were also told uh, if you eat these, uh, people will think you're really cool. Uh, and uh, people were way more drawn to to do it if they thought there was some kind of, uh, you know, social benefit to themselves. And this kind of extends beyond uh, something like like insects, even as far as how we experience taste. You know, they do. there's tests where uh, there's been studies where it's proven that if people think they're getting, you know, a health benefit or people think that they're getting some kind of uh, kind of personal personal uh, advantage uh, or even just attaching positive statements to the things that they're eating. Um, and you have this also with, with, with energy technologies and all kinds of other things, you know, when these, when these things are, are sold as being a, a positive, uh, you know, bold, uplifting kind of um, thing to be involved in, people are, are much more, more keen rather than being, uh, you know, scolded or, or, or even told, I'm sure people do want to do well, but the kind of uh, imperative when it's a kind of personal benefit rather than maybe a societal benefit is, is very, very powerful. So, you know, this idea of desire and, and kind of mimesis and, and kind of um, the influence that we have on one another when it comes to food is very, very strong. Uh, and, uh, and I would say that, you know, creating freeing up uh, I mean, because our food system is very stuck. We have a very set palate, you know, it's not, we're not, we're nowhere near the potential we could be at. And so whenever we try and think about, uh, you know, what are the possible avenues for uh, transformation that exist, very often we have to think uh, about, you know, things that people will be drawn towards. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement, which is an well, exciting thing then. Yeah, I mean, part part of me thinks like when we think about the sort of the broader public, and I'm very much including myself in that public, I feel like we're negotiating with a toddler and so often. And it's this idea of, you know, you can't have this chocolate chip cookie, but we found some zero calorie, sugar-free chocolate chip cookie, and that will solve all the world's problems, as opposed to like just almost, I wonder if what needs to be said is, 
no more chocolate chip cookies for anybody. Like we need to drastically change, change our lifestyle, change our, uh, to go back to food, change our palate, change our, our taste. Um, and so uh, Natasha, I want to, I want to come back to you for a second because you were talking about your work and your colleagues in the art world. What is the role of art in trying to change the public's perception or challenge the public perception or invite the public into this conversation to reimagine what their lifestyle, what their life might need to be in the future if we're going to have this sort of transformative change? Personally, I'm convinced it's immense, that this place is immense, the place of, uh, of effective impact, of impact that doesn't necessarily take place immediately. Uh, so as with, let's say, theater or with, uh, with cinema, maybe, the, there is more and more of I would say of, of uh, heightened awareness in, in the art world, at least those parts that I'm part of, that I am, you know, that I collaborate with, that wants to use the space of visibility because there is a lot of uh, issues, uh, you know, art goes together with visibility, visibility to the publics, but also visibility regarding where, where the current project might take you next. So going back to the future, artists are thinking a lot about their future while doing uh, their projects uh, in the present moment. So there is this um, space for visibility and uh, addressing directly the publics. So that's why I, for example, where, where I work or when I work as a, uh, in a, as a curator, uh, I always ask questions of um, if I don't know the institution where I'm uh, with, with which I'm collaborating. I always ask questions: Who is your public? Who am I addressing? Who are we talking to? Can we meet them previous, like beforehand? Can we have programs that uh, relate to? If we are working on an exhibition, can there be something that relates to um, to public? So this ped almost pedagogical moment in art is very important, I think, at least for me. Furthermore, again, going back to my example, uh, coming from Yugoslavia and during the war, and it's not unrelated to what we see now, for example, with the war taking place in Ukraine and how several artists that remain there are um, sending their works, they're sending their drawings, they're sending their messages, actually, what's taking place there. It was similar in during the Yugoslavia. There, there were uh, the Yugoslavian conflict and the war. There were several artists that actually saved each other's lives through art projects. We have specific examples of that. Uh, that, uh, for example, a, a group of artists called Neue Slovenische Kunst formed a state in time. They called it a state in time in order to relate to this new wave of nationalism that was taking place in Yugoslavia. And one of their projects was issuing passports, issuing diplomatic passports that were basically used for people to be able to escape from uh, the conflict zones. You see, I mean, as, as modest as this sounds, I think art does play an immense role in uh, refining our attention and refining our understanding of what is going on with us and around us. Yeah, um, Philip, this reminds me of something that you said earlier about thinking on a systemic level, all right, and thinking about ins institutions needing to change. Um, Lara, I want to sort of rope you into that conversation and use that as a prompt for you and sort of your colleagues and folks of your generation. Um, how, how many of your 
or let me say it this way. Um, do you get a sense that you and your, uh, your cohort of activists are really thinking um, in terms of individual action? Or do you feel like there is an engagement with systemic, the systemic problems and really thinking about the systems, not only the political systems, the business systems, the technological systems that may be, so, uh, may be uh, creating some change that we don't want and uh, preventing some change that we do want? Yeah, I think the brutal reality is that at this point, individual action will not take us to the place that we are supposed to be. At this point, it is really about systematic change, about uh, changing legislation so that businesses don't pollute um, as much as they are. Also, you know, holding these companies actually produce like the top 30 companies produce like 60% of the carbon emissions. You'll have to fact check me on that. But, you know, it is absolutely incredible how immense the contribution of businesses are towards increasing climate change. So, of course, everyone should be um, taking individual action to really limit their carbon footprints, to reduce their own individual emissions. But in order to create the change necessary to prevent catastrophic events and a crisis, the climate crisis is, you know, what everyone is actually calling climate change right now, because I really think that language is also really important um, when discussing issues like these. In order to prevent the climate crisis, we really need to take uh, broader action. As a UA ambassador, um, one of my main jobs has been trying to empower youth and people in this country and to try and integrate climate education into the school curriculums because they're not really um, as present as they should be in educational uh, curricula. Real, I realized that working with um, you know, the UAE uh, government, the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment, is that the individuals in power have to you know, pass legislations, but in order to do so, they sometimes need encouragement and they sometimes need accountability, as I said. So when the public is engaged because they understand this issue and involved in these issues, taking individual actions such as, you know, speaking out about these issues, um, you know, going on social media, having discussions, um, actually maybe doing something positive in their work environments, um, putting pressure on businesses and governments, then they really need to actually react to this, right? So if the action is like that in the in the form of, pressure, I think that is extremely effective. Um, because, you know, I remember sitting in a meeting with um, Her Excellency Amina Mohammed, um, the Deputy Secretary, Secretary General of the UN. And I, I literally couldn't believe that she said this. I was laughing quite a lot, actually, but she kind of really offhandedly mentioned, oh, but climate change is so sexy right now. And it's actually so true because in these spaces, um, there's so much excitement and positivity surrounding climate change as horrible of an issue it is. Um, the individuals who are on the streets, who are in the classrooms and in these institution businesses pushing for positive change, there is this genuine excitement and support. Um, and when there is that, it creates this positive environment of collaboration and people actually want to take action. Governments actually see it as um, something really, I guess, great to actually pursue. So kind of, I guess, subverting this negative issue into a positive one and creating this um, environment, as Natasha had said, of care, I think can really influence the way that we go ahead with these, uh, with facing these 
uh, problems. Yeah. Natasha, I'd love to, to have you uh, chime in on this because there is a risk, right, um, in the discourse for things to become taglines, for things to be co-opted, for things to be branded. You know, um, there is, you know, a huge corporate interest that like to talk about structural racism and talk about forced migration and colonialism and decolonizing and uh, climate change. And it's easy for these to get turned into marketing campaigns. How do you think about, uh, you know, your work deals with this idea of rehumanizing the things that are um, structurally dehumanized. How do you sort of think about that? Um, I'd love for you to shed some light on that. I would just go, if I may, a little bit back to Lara, because also what I realized I, I wanted, and, and we call it art world as if it's like a planet on its own. So it's so, it's so uh, you know, also very um, dismaying sometimes. We contribute to the carbon footprint, you know, uh, the you know the the careers of artists, the the, the exhibition making, etc., is heavily, um, uh, heavily, how to say, uh, dependent on on the transportation, transportation of objects, subjects, objects and humans, right? So there has been a lot, I think, also within the the arts institutions, but also among artists. A lot of reflection that go with uh, using other materials, using non-toxic materials, using organic materials, creating one's own paper, you know, creating material with which to, to draw, um, learning about how to reduce uh, the carbon footprint when making exhibitions, etc. So I think there is, this is also where, where what we were talking previously about the change um, and how it cannot be individual, comes in also for, for the art world. And I'm very happy to, to see that these things are moving and actually quite fast, uh, very much on systemic level. Uh, but about, so, and, and based on that, um, the art world still is very related to capitalist system. So it has been built on it. It has been built on accumulation. You know, collections are accumulations of objects as such. So there is this idea of certain structural um, uh, hierarchy uh, that also necessarily involves structural uh, discriminations within uh, the levels of, of the ways in which art institutions are organized, the ways in which they work. For example, just about the notions of cleaning and caring for institutions. Uh, usually these are uh, parts of, uh, you know, the, the employees in the art institutions still are very much racialized wherever you go. Uh, they are either forced migrants uh, sending money back to, you know, um, cleaning and uh, security staff, for example, that actually are those that enable that actually we enjoy what we see. So it's a very important issue, I think, of uh, this issue of, of critical care, as we call it, uh, in relationship also to the question who cares about the institutions. So that would be maybe my, I don't know if you see that it's related. I see it very much related to what, to what we are talking about because yeah. it is part of, of, of this discussion. And so also this uh, very strata of what it makes actually an art institution is very much part of, of uh, the work of many artists. Yeah, absolutely. Philip, I have a question for you. In the Black Almanac, there is this year that you've already sort of alluded to, 2050. Through your work, what is relevant about that year and what are some of the outcomes that you sort of foresee may or may not happen at that due date? 
in a, in a way, the 2050 thing is alluding to the the kind of pathway model that we're really familiar with from from kind of climate uh, environmental uh, sort of uh, intergovernmental projections. Anyway, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a uh, kind of a, a, a card trick because you know we're it's uh, the almanac is based on research. You know, I am of the opinion that you know traces of the of the uh, the present can be uh, sorry the future can be found in the present so what we've kind of done is you know we set it up as steps as a kind of timeline but really what we're doing is trying to illuminate some of the categories that we think need uh, greater attention things like you know um farming subsidies uh things um like business trends that are kind of really upstream right now, but like are coming sort of down the line, things that are happening in labs, uh, you know, kind of the the kind of um, agricultural kind of case studies. And, and I don't know, like we're trying to kind of lift the veil on where we think the, the, the big kind of meaty parts of the, the food system kind of are uh, that kind of need to... Um, need to go uh, to, to change. And so it's interesting when you mention change, like looking uh, forward, because it seems to me that we've for a very long time been aware that our diet, you know, has this incredible uh, impact on the landscape around us, right? You know, you can see your plate in front of you as a kind of, you know, a globe in miniature, a tiny little tweak on there kind of transforms you know a whole sort of seabed or 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 a kind of massive landscape and and it seems to me that at this point we all know that we should you know eat eat certain ways but knowing isn't enough i think it is probably possible for you know technology to kind of step in in order to kind of not change our 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 kind of core sort of diet that's a controversial statement and it's not what we're aiming for you know there's all these kind of speculative technologies sort of cellular agriculture to kind of make lab-grown meat whatever you know you can kind of look at that but what we've kind of through looking at the past we've come to a kind of a kind of vision of food that is is recognizing the artificiality of it, the breeding, the cultivation that's happened over many generations, uh, the, you know, the color, like all, everything is kind of to some degree intermingled with the human system that we were sort of talking about earlier, as well as other systems. But also that food's this very mysterious and kind of powerful force in our lives. It's the point at which we become one with our environment. Um, we, we really kind of, uh, we merge our metabolisms with the metabolism of the planet when we eat. And so we're kind of very shy about it and we're very worried about it. But what we kind of argue ultimately is that this alienation is something that we ultimately should embrace. And that rather than expecting food to remain the same, which we arguably might be able to do, and I think so much of human kind of creativity is, is put into uh opposing change uh you know um all the advertising of food all the kind of greenwashed marketing on the food packaging and so on really this is trying to tell you that you know don't worry nothing's really changed farming looks as the same as it always did but actually we've been locked into really damaging farming methods since the beginning of agriculture and i think that uh you know embracing alienation uh and, and kind of making it desirable is something that aesthetically we've been trying to achieve with the project as well and and kind of looking at uh interesting um examples of when this happened in the past sorry i, I know i'm rambling a little bit now but uh you know we we talked about things like um 
you know, lobster, for example, you know, lobster was, uh, was a food that, that in America, you know, they, I don't know totally if this is apocryphal or not, but either way it was considered this like disgusting bottom feeding a lot of the way that in, in, in kind of, uh, Western culture. Now people think about insects a lot of the time. This is how lobster was regarded, but it made this total, uh, kind of status inversion where it became, you know, lobster firmador and like this like beautiful kind of uh, centerpiece. And largely that was driven by culture. It was driven by the adoption of kind of uh, Boston Brahmins and like the kind of bohemian hipsters of the day in the Northeast of the US kind of started eating this thing, which was available as an incredible economic resource in coastal regions. And, you know, um, uh, I bring this up because, uh, you know, the, these kind of transformations have happened before. And I think a kind of a, a bit of weirdness and a bit of discomfort, um, you know, it's not it's not out of a place of scolding, but it's a place of sort of exciting newness uh, can actually be very generative. And we've been using like AI to generate our, uh, our imagery, for example, you know, that accompanies some of the projects and, and things that we're doing, like videos and and all that kind of thing, just to kind of just to kind of highlight to people that food oil is already very weird. Like food is already quite a strange proposition when you consider what it is in terms of, uh, yeah, you know, you, you know, you, you, are, I mean, you are food, you know, there's things living inside you that are eating you as, as we speak. So never mind, you know, it's not so much, uh, you are what you eat as what, e what you are, what eats you, you know, <laughs> we're already, we're already inhabited by aliens and, um, and, uh, yeah, I think there's actually a lot of kind of generative, uh, you know, uh, kind of, um, desirable kind of, uh, strangeness in that. And, uh, yeah, the project was really to kind of open some of that up. Amazing. Okay. I'm going to end with a, a simple question to each of you to sort of wrap up what has been a very lively discussion. So at one of the events at Expo 2020 Dubai, I think it was uh, called Program for People on the Planet. There was one of those standard surveys that gets sent out to participants and organizers. And there was a bunch of different questions, feedback questions. And one of the questions at the end said, did this event or activation of this week inspire you to take personal actions to make the world a better place? And when that email you know, arrives in your inbox, it's easy to sort of greet it with a cynicism and an eye roll and say, come on, do we really need inspiration? Do we need more than that? Do we need more than individual action? But each of you are being productive in your field and are trying to sort of deal with these very, very heavy issues head on. And so I imagine that you need a sense of something to combat that cynicism, to sort of <laughs> put one foot in front of the other every single day. Um, but cynicism is, is productive and can be helpful. So maybe let's start with Laura, let's start with you. How do you manage that balance of optimism and cynicism, you know, a sense of possibility and uh, a helplessness about where we are and where we might be in the future? Well, first of all, I wanted to thank Ulster Carl and Expo for actually organizing these events. Um, the theme of Expo was uh, connecting minds, um, creating the future. And I think that they really de did deliver on this promise, you know, to meet with people who are working towards the same goals as you, but with vastly different um, experiences and perspectives was so enriching and I definitely learned so much, you know, talking to other uh, our other participants in the climate and biodiversity um, event that I was a part of um, on stage, but also off stage, you know, during our private conversations um, and 
just discussions about the uh, issues in a more general sense. So I think all these conversations definitely did inspire me um, because a majority of the people who are doing this program with me um, have years and years of experience and have really been in this industry uh, the majority of their lives and have this wisdom and to listen to them just discuss these issues with them was uh, so important for me as you know youth uh, looking into studying uh, these issues at university and then as a career working on these topics so I think sometimes people actually don't see how inspiring it is to actually listen to someone, an expert who has been uh, working on these issues, because just one lecture, just one speech can really inspire a young person or even like at any age to start their environmental journey, to start uh, fixing the problems. So yes, I think my exchanges here were very valuable. Um, and I think Really being a part of the youth climate movement has exposed me to the power that youth have um, in amplifying climate action. And of course, there is a lot of uh, cynicism, but there is a lot of positivity and support as well. And I think one thing I've learned as well is that youth are stub stubborn optimists, um, a phrase that we love a lot um, in the climate movement, because something that stubborn optimism is something that is really necessary uh, when you're in this field, because there are a lot of really, I guess, upsetting conversations when you're constantly surrounded by new reports coming out, um, the impacts that climate change is having on the world through the news. You really can fall into this rabbit hole of cynicism. It's really important to have this, I guess, environment of support uh, and this network of people who are there for you emotionally as well, um, mm -hmm. as well as just mentors educationally. So yes, I think that's how I kind of balance the cynicism, being surrounded by people who are really caring and who are supportive and people who are really striving to achieve uh, the same goals as I am, because at the end of the day, it's all about collaboration. It's all about coming together uh, to solve this issue. Sure. Great. Natasha, how about you? I saw you nodding along with my question as I was asking it. Lara, this was so beautiful. So thank you very much. I cannot find other words than what you said. So the support structures are those that really it's and it's either family, it's either kinships with uh, plants, with animals, with rivers, with spirits, you know, support structure that uh, to which you in which you can find again and again, the energy and the, the optimism that you need to go further, because there is a lot of cynicism and there is a lot of violence in our immediate environments, not only socially, but also in working environments. Uh, and also this is, I think, part of what uh, what I see, uh, at least for myself, and, and what, what was also related to our discussions, for example, which I was part of at the Expo, I could really sense indeed that it is very important with whom you work, with whom you associate in order to produce, um, in order to work on, on, on projects or on uh, on ideas that uh, that lead to certain change, it's very important with whom you associate and and how you feel as a group uh, together. We we have found it, for example, before like during the pandemics, I, I co-founded with several artists here in Greater Paris region uh, an initiative called Initiative for Practices and Visions of Radical Care, where we um, work on mutu mutuality which is something that doesn't exist in the art world. You know, it, it's based on capitalist 
system, whereas we just try to put our competencies in order to help each other. Our members of this initiative are, for example, uh, some artists that came to, Par to Paris to live as refugees. Uh, some are healthcare practitioners, um, some are philosophers, and we just basically became a big kinship uh, structure. And we see like, how in, in two years' time, it has affected several of our you know, friends and uh, colleagues and uh, people are curious about it. Definitely an event of that kind of massive attraction which is Expo, uh, and especially this one. Uh, I would claim that, you know, during its duration, many things happened, many sad things, but also many probably good things happened. And I think that this, the, the idea of planting the seeds with what we do every day is something that I take with me uh, when cynicism tries to overcome me. Great. Philip, how about you? Take us away. Yeah, I also want to pick up on uh, what Lara said about uh, the kind of uh, sensationalism of of, of the, the daily reports of you know how uh, how doomed we all are. I mean, I'm very uh, I'm very anti this idea of of collapse and panic. To be honest, I don't find it particularly useful. And you know, a lot of the focus in the last uh, ten years has focus has shifted from uh, kind of. Uh, traditional journalistic uh, sensationalism towards social media as if that's the root of all evil. But I think it was already pretty bad, to be honest, before social media. And I say this as somebody who's worked as a journalist. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you, uh, inspiration and kind of personal, uh, you know, changes, uh, that's where the question kind of came out. I mean, I'm a bit, I'm quite uh, realistic, I think, about our, our project. I don't, I think, you know, the, it's a, it's a speculative, you know, almanac whose goal is kind of communication and really picking up on some of the sneaking suspicions I think people have that all is not as it seems, uh, perhaps um, with food, you know, I don't... Um, I don't uh, see, you know, necessarily us as having this kind of great impact, but what we're doing is is cataloging the work of, of some really amazing people, you know, people who are working in policy, people who are working in in uh, in, in science, in kind of uh, in innovation and technology, and there's definitely. A, a, a genuine desire to to kind of fix agriculture um, and to eat you know better or to pe for people to just do whatever they can in that kind of small way and so as a kind of final thought I mean one thing is that I think that there ought to be a new vision of what farming looks like um, because it can't look as it did in the past in the future um, and I find very suspicious of this kind of uh, very prominent especially quite quite middle class idea that we somehow need to go back in order to go forward I don't I don't think that the past was a inherently benign place um, throughout most of, of our history you know humans have been spending almost all of their time trying to secure a safe um, you know nourishing uh, food supply and you know increasing numbers of us are able to achieve that at this point and so you know a lot of the kind of um, issues with the food system are placed on this uh, issue of scale, right? Like that it's doing things in, at scale, but at the same time, we're achieving equality at scale as well. And, and as some, I don't know, I, I find that very valuable and kind of a great achievement. And so, you know, 
I think that we've done very well at uh, coming to a place where we're giving, offering people safe food that is what it says it is. I mean, you know, so much of history is, is about adult, adulterated, uh, you know, bread with like, uh, you know, lice in it and, and, and kind of all of these things. And, and I think we've got beyond that, but now we need to go the next step, which is to address the source of production as well. Uh, so it's not only that it's, uh, it's not going to poison you, it's just, it's not going to, uh, it's not going to, to poison the place that it emerged from it as well. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some really amazing people that work in this and, uh, you know, there are, there are kind of reasons to be hopeful. I, um, and, 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 you know, and they're just trying to sell newspapers with these headlines, you know, you should never forget that speak to the scientists. I mean, their, their, their perspective is often much more, uh, nuanced and, um, and, uh, and, and often quite different to what you think, uh, you know, they're likely to say. Sure. Well, I appreciate you all taking the time to share your perspective and share some of the, the thought behind your work. So Laura, Philip, Natasha, thanks so much for being a part of this. It was so fun. Thanks so much. Thanks to everybody Thank you very for your much. responses. Yeah.